Hey, hello, hi, welcome to and we're back to the Equitheory podcast. I am your host, Jill Treese, and this week's episode is a continuation of last week's part one as I explored sort of, you know, my little book talk situation, uh, reading The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk and seeing how some of the principles of things that I learned from the book might apply to work with horses and particularly horses that deal with problem behaviors and struggle with perhaps past trauma. So I would love nothing more than to continue this discussion uh, a little bit more organized than last week, a um, little less crunched for time. So hopefully this will be a little bit of a deeper dive. Um, got a lot of really positive reception from the last episode and some of the social postings on, on the TikTok and the Instagram. So uh, this seems to be a topic that people are interested in. So I'm happy to continue the conversation. So let's get into it. Alrighty, guys, you know the drill. Before we get into the content of the episodes, we got to roll some ads. So let's get to that. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, all right, all right. So some housekeeping things before we get back into the episode. If you would like to not have to deal with ads in the future, you may become a premium feed subscriber. So what that means is you'll click the link down in the description to Supercast. It'll be equitheory.supercast.com or you can go to Supercast, search Equitheory, become a member for however much you want, or you could just support the show. There's a donate option, five to 15, whatever you want per month. And you get the ability to ask me anything. And what that means is you write out a big old question that you want me to <laughs> read and answer, and you'll get an episode dedicated to answering that question on the members-only feed. You'll also get access to deep dive episodes that will be coming and ad-free, so you don't have to deal with ads anymore. Um, so if that's something you're interested in, please consider becoming a member. Beyond that, if you have a sort of a general question that can be fit in the old Twitter length, um, there's a, a new segment that I'd like to start on the podcast. So backing up a little bit, in the description of each episode, you'll see where it says listener survey. And so many of you took that survey. My God, I thought it was like really hard to get people to take surveys. But thank you, dedicated people <laughs> who took the time and answered that survey and told me what you thought. I have read 90% of it, but there were so many responses. I'm still sort of sifting through it. First of all, Thank you. My God, how nice some of you were. Like, genuinely, some of the most moving things I've ever read. Like, it seeing how much the podcast means to you guys is was really like heartwarming and made this feel all the more worth it. So, thank you, those of you that really took the time and dedication and wrote something super nice or super thoughtful, gave me pointers and things you want to see or don't see on the show. Um, but yeah, so one of the things was that 
uh, there was some serious contention over organized episodes or rambly episodes. Some people really, really love the rambly episodes and were like, Jill, please, oh my God, stop saying how annoying you are all the time. We're listening to you. We want to stop complaining or like apologizing for yourself. And then other people were like, I want more structure, less rambly. So sort of mixing that up a little bit and seeing if I can introduce some segments so that we can still keep the same old rambly gill, but, um, you know, have some more consistency to the show. So what I am proposing with that is, um, a little bit of an advice segment. You know, I want, I want some things that I can do to sort of build out the show a little bit more. So we got the main topic. And then at the end, I'd like to do some quick Q and A's, you know, a little bit, um, So, you know, like I mentioned, something you can fit into a Twitter question, uh, old Twitter, not new Twitter, um, or X, whatever, God. Uh, So just a short question, like, what do you think about X, Y, and Z? Or how do I cope with this? Um, With my horse, what, what, whatever it is. So there will be a listener submissions form. So just a Google form in the description. If you want to check that out and submit something, I might answer it on the show. But if you, again, if you want your question, like guaranteed answered, then you got to become a member, bro. Especially if you want to add more detail. Like if you don't have enough room, become a member. It's five bucks. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me see what else I got here. Um, I did actually take notes for this episode, so I do have some things that I would like to say. Um, first of all, uh, as we get into the content here of the episode, this is a book called, uh, the body keeps the score. It is about, trauma and trauma recovery. It is a book that I think is more perhaps directed at clinicians than perhaps individuals with trauma due to the nature of the content described. If you are a younger individual, I don't recommend reading this book. It has some very, very graphic descriptions of abuse and assault, uh, of which I will not be describing today, but I do want to give sort of a content warning here that there will be discussions of trauma and abuse. Um, more directed at, you know, day-to-day interactions with horses, not so much on the human front. Um, but just if you're sensitive to that sort of thing, be, be mindful, check in with yourself and make sure that it's safe for you to continue. Um, another thing that I want to sort of address off rip here is, um, just some sort of things that I want to make sure that you know that I'm aware of. Um, horses are flight animals and being in flight mode, as a horse is not necessarily a trauma response. It is a natural response to attempting to survive. It is ingrained in them. It's normal. Um, sort of more what we're talking about is when that gets a little bit dysregulated, when it's coming up in abnormal situations or when it's inhibited. We'll get into that a little bit more uh, throughout the episode. Uh, I also want to point out that I'm well aware that horses and humans are different. Uh, and in in studying psychology, as I wrap up the clinical mental health counseling thing and start working more towards becoming a therapist, um, I am learning a lot about psychology and how people work, how the brain works. And I'm well aware that horses and humans are not the same thing. And my intention with these episodes is not to be anthropomorphic or say that humans and horses are the same and that horses feel the same things we do. But sometimes there is overlap. So 
I, I want to approach this conversation on trauma and horses from more of a take it as a principle. These are the principles from human psychology, human studies, and things that we've learned from that, and how that might perhaps apply to horses, since we don't have sort of a similar insight into horses because horses can't talk. So it's a little bit harder to sort of assess those things to know, is this a trauma response? Is it a learned response from negative past experiences? Does that constitute trauma? You know, it's a little bit, a little bit fuzzier there. Um, So more or less, these are more musings on how we might apply what we know about trauma and horse and humans to our work with horses, how it might, how this understanding might facilitate more of a compassionate approach to some of the things that crop up in terms of problems and behavior with horses. Um, also something that's, I just wanted to say off the top because somebody mentioned it in one of the comments is, uh, polyvagal theory. It is covered in this book, but briefly, if you're not familiar with it, it's the work of Stephen Porges, Deb Dana. They, um, it's, it centers around your vagus nerve and how it innervates your body. And it's closely related to your stress response as it's a part of your autonomic nervous system. But I do want to say that I don't know enough about it to feel like super confident talking about it. It's, it's, it's one of those areas that has been on the horizon for me for a while. Um, I've listened to, uh, Warwick in the horse world talk about it. I've listened to some of Steve Porges, Deb Dana, um, and I've listened to it come up with like my Gottman research and stuff. Like it's it's out there in little hints, but I haven't formally looked at polyvagal theory. That's something that I would really like to do a deep dive on, um, and that might be one of the um, premium deep dive episodes that I cover. If you're interested in that, please let me know. Um, but yeah, I just I just wanted to mention that that is something that if you're heavy into this stuff, you might feel is being excluded from this conversation. Um, and that's intentional because it's it's very complicated to me and there's a lot that goes into it. And if I'm going to cover something like that, I want to do it justice. And um, I just feel like I haven't looked into it enough. And that's something else I want to say at the top of the show here with the um, conversation around trauma is that uh, I think it's imp- it's worth noting that this podcast is not designed to be a replacement for therapy or a behavior consult. These are me taking my personal view and what I have learned as an individual into the conversation with horses. This is not me speaking as a clinical professional here, okay? So um, with that said, let us move forward. So... Yeah, the Vanderkolk book. Very, 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 very interesting. Very cool. Uh, there are some very dark parts of this book, but it is a really comprehensive look at the neuroscience behind how trauma affects humans, how it affects our approach, how it affects our um, tendency to cycle and stay stuck in vicious cycles that are harmful. And it's not intentional, but when you see people that, um, you're like, oh my God, you're so self-destructive. You, you know, maybe you grew up in, in a household that was really destructive and you continue to seek out these patterns and then you feel this sort of judgmental blame towards them where you're like, why do you keep doing this to yourself? A possible explanation, depending on their history, is that they are traumatized and they are stuck in this, in this loop and they unintentionally seek out these patterns and 
without some sort of intervention, you know, whatever that may be therapeutic, um, it's, it's not likely to, to stop. So, um, in, in that, the encouragement here is to find compassion, at least for me. That, that was my takeaway from this. It was the explanation of trauma, traumatic responses, traumatic reenactments, where you're seeing those horrible things continue to play out for people, um, that it, it deserves compassion and it deserves a reverence and a level of understanding, um, that this is a really unfortunate thing (laughs) that this individual is stuck in. And, um, we see that a lot with horses. And so at the top of the, the book, the body keeps the score, uh, Vanderkolk explains that there are three avenues to recovery. And I would be willing to hedge that and say that there are many roads to Rome as it were, but, um, for concision's sake, first being top down, which is what you typically associate with, like, if somebody has trauma and they go to therapy, that's your typical top-down. It's very um, cognitive. You're talking, reconnecting, allowing the self to understand what's going on and process the trauma. So um, a lot of back and forth. This, the trick with trauma, and at least from what I understand from the book, and I, I know that there are 8 million schools of psychology, um, theoretical orientations, if you will. There's cognitive behavioral. There's straight-up cognitive. There's straight-up behavioral. There's existential, gestalt, um, psychomotor, sensory motor. Like there's a bunch of models. Um, most people, when they think of therapy, they think of Freud and um, the not psychosomatic. Um, oh my God, why am I blanking? Psychodynamic, psychoanalytic. Um, but yeah, so that, that that one's more or less outdated. You can still apply it for sure. Uh, but it's it's a little less popular these days. The most popular is CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and that is largely the approach to working with horses is behaviorist therapy um, or theory. So big names in that field that you're probably already aware of: Ivan, Ivan Pavlov and B.F. Skinner. Um, Pavlov was the one that did mostly classical conditioning, um, so we it's mostly associative the Pavlov's dog associating the bell with the bringing of food, the dog salivates, classically conditioned. Um, Skinner was the one that did the um, operant conditioning. So your positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive, negative punishment, the quadrants, that's Skinner. So um, we apply a lot of those concepts to humans and it can help many, many things, but, um, it's, I think it's a little bit more difficult with humans due to the complex nature of our brains and our lives, um, for that to sort of be the end all be all approach. Um, CBT, I, I feel in my personal opinion is, uh, sort of marketed or pitched as the end all be all approach. It's the panacea. It's the science-based research-based method. And there's a lot of merit to it. However, it's also the arguably, at least again, in my opinion, the most uncomplicated one. It's the easiest to measure and study. Um, and, but I also feel like it doesn't fully account for how complex humans are and therefore it doesn't really address everything that it needs to. 
Uh, so I feel personally it falls short. I find myself using a lot of the techniques and principles from CBT. I think it's incredibly valuable. And it also harkens back for me personally to horse training. Um, but I don't feel like it is a is the end-all be-all approach. I think it needs a little bit more work. So in the Vanderkolk book, it definitely reinforced that idea that it's your to to basically summarize the book, right? Um, so this is a very nuanced conversation that requires a lot more discussion. Um, so please take my next sort of explanation with a grain of salt and realize that there's a lot more to it. And I'm trying to pare it down to the bare bones here is that um, in trauma, the parts of your brain that are responsible for language and memory organization that create cohesive, coherent, structured, linear memories sort of blank out when you go through a traumatic experience, your brain shuts down. Uh, I talked a little bit in the last episode about that inescapable shock when your excitatory and inhibitory processes happen at the same time, system breaks down, brain kind of goes, what? Um, And then you start leaning on more amygdala, sort of that irrational, if you will. It's very rational, but um, just sort of your animalistic brain, if you will, which is not fully accurate, but to, to paint a picture here. So if your language and memory centers sort of black out during a traumatic experience, trying to rationalize with someone about it is not particularly helpful because you can be looking at someone saying, well, you know, like, it's, it's not reasonable or rational for you to feel guilty or shameful about that. It wasn't your fault, but they still feel that way. So now you've just invalidated it. It's not, it's not, the intention is not helping. Um, the intention's pure and good. And well, I mean, what else do you do? Right. Um, and this book sort of gives you that. What else do you do? Um, but to just be like, oh, you shouldn't feel that way is like not acknowledging that you still do. And why is that? And exploring that more. So, um, and that, that's why the top-down approach is not always the best um, and particularly isn't super well-fitted to trauma. So second avenue that he mentions in the book, uh, in the prologue, is the medication, uh, which sort of shuts down those inappropriate alarm reactions, your fight-flight amygdala when it's all distorted from being oversensitive, hyperactive. Um, So that tech sort of alters the how the brain organizes information um so that can be very helpful is it an end-all be-all it depends on what the definition of success end-all be-all is in that situation so the third approach what we're sort of getting at um in not wanting to go top down is bottom-up approach so what a bottom-up approach is is allowing the body to have deep visceral experiences that contradict the helplessness, rage, collapse um, that was experienced during the traumatic event, whatever it was, or events. Um, so it's it's interesting how, like the parallels that I saw in reading this book between horses and humans. So with, with horses, they're primarily going to be bottom up because you can't talk to them. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can, but do they understand? Mm. So, and I feel like horses are 
deeply in tune with themselves, traumatized or not. Um, and they're very aware of their surroundings. They're interconnected in that way. So in, in taking a bottom up approach seems the most natural, right? Um, it's, it's their element already. Whereas with humans, we're very thinky. We tend to, uh, retreat into our brains and out of our body when we're, um, when we're, you know, distressed and, uh, some people do go into their bodies, but horses particularly. So, um, sort of what we're looking at here is that bottom up approach of how can we integrate the body's experience? How can we modernize it, bring it up to speed, um, and sort of out of that past. So I've, I've broken up this discussion into sort of part one and part two, uh, in this part two episode. So part one is sort of the understanding explanation and part two is the treatment recovery section, if you will. Um, so understanding reactivity and problem behavior that is going to encompass how, how does it work when you have experienced trauma or when a horse has experienced trauma? Um, so it's important to understand that people superimpose their trauma on everything around them. So this is not to say that they're dramatic or that they're overreacting, but that they're hypervigilant, that they see the world around them as generally somewhat threatening. Um, of course, this is going to depend on degrees of trauma and all of that. I'd rather not hedge every statement I make. <laughs> so um, let's be charitable and understanding. Um, so the that they see the the trauma, that they see threat. Um, and that is a result of being compulsively, consistently pulled back to the past. Um, and that happens because the, like I said, the memory and language organization centers of the brain that, that organize into linear events that help the brain and the body understand that this thing happened in the past are not up to speed. They're, they're stuck there. So it, whenever something happens that's reminiscent of that or triggers that same feeling, um, it's similar in some way, then the body goes right back to that response. It is literally triggered back to the past. So basically Vanderkolk's whole pitch in the book is that rather than desensitizing you to triggers, you need to integrate the experience into your into the timeline the story of your life and it needs to be like recataloged um it needs to go back on the shelf as a past experience not something that you keep being pulled back to so hopefully that is making sense it's a little bit of a a complicated experience but just just think of it as like this horrible thing happened in the past and you move along the timeline up to the present and then something happens that reminds you of that experience and that is a trigger and it like sends you right back to that spot and uh, the same areas in the brain light up the same physiological bodily sensation happens all over again so helping the mind understand that that was the past and these things that are similar are not necessarily indicative of the same thing. Uh, and like I said, this episode is more oriented to towards horses, but I, I find it might be easier to explain and empathize 
as a listener, if you imagine it in your own body, in your own life. Um, and unfortunately, some of you might not have to. So again, I just want to say, if this conversation is bringing up any anxiety or feelings of discomfort, please be mindful of that and pace yourself, notice that. And if it's not, if it doesn't feel like the episode for you, it's not the episode for you. Um, or take a break and do some breathing. So yeah, so understanding that that is what's happening. That's what we mean by a trigger. It's not necessarily like that triggered me and that it just, you did something that upset me. <laughs> it's that it's taking it back to um, something that was traumatizing. So I feel like a lot of you may be thinking, okay, how does this apply to my horse? I have similar memories um, of my horse going through that where something happens that is so minute, but they've had this history in the past where they can't integrate that. So um, a small example that is perhaps not trauma, perhaps a, a bad learning experience. It, it exists on a continuum, right? Um, so for Zoe, I was at a Will Faudry clinic, right? I'm riding Zoe and we're doing our eventing thing and we come up to a ditch and she's jumped a thousand ditches before, never had an issue. This time she sort of misses and puts her back feet in the ditch and it caused her to trip and it scared her. And then she did not want to jump it again um, to the point where Will was then leading her across the ditch, trying to get her to go over it. Um, she eventually did, but then was sort of not comfortable with ditches thereafter. Then many of you know, uh, I went to a Boyd Martin clinic <laughs> and uh, at Texas Rose and we were approaching the ditch and I had mentioned that she had an issue with ditches because she had had a bad experience and she might not be super comfortable. And so he stood on the edge of the ditch and as we approached it, she started veering and he stepped back, which I mean, what are you going to do? You're trying to get out of the way um, for my trajectory line. She was not going to run him over, <laughs> but he, as she was approaching, he sort of backed up into that line. Um, you know, I, he didn't know what she was going to do. And then she shouldered him and knocked him on the ground and he rolled. It was not a fun experience. Um, so <laughs> my horse ran over to Boyd Martin, the fun tagline that I am stuck with forever. Um, so yeah, that that was that learned experience of those are bad that that scared me really badly. And we didn't take the time to systematically teach her that ditches are okay. And she didn't generalize that to every new ditch. She didn't understand that that was the one incident. And it is likely not to happen again, especially since she knows to be careful with them. Um, so that's sort of a an example, perhaps that's the first one that comes to mind. Um, so helping, helping that. And a lot of what we do with horses is through positive reinforcement. A lot of you may have your own experience with counter conditioning and, uh, helping the horses through systematic desensitization, successive approximation, working up to the thing that is potentially frightening rather than flooding, which is what we did. And that's not what worked, right? We said, just throw the horse out. It goes fast as possible <laughs> and not let her check it out. Think about it. Just go. And, that's what happened. So something else to understand, and I can't say with certainty that this applies to horses, but since our physiology is not all that different, uh, relatively speaking, I think it is a fair, perhaps assumption 
to be investigated. Um, in humans, when stressed, we secrete stress hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, that sort of thing. So that propels us to action. It propels us to fight, flight, freeze, fawn, faint, whatever, um, usually shortened to fight, flight, freeze. For horses, that's typically going to be fight uh, or flight and then maybe some fight. Uh, the initial sort of response to fear is freeze. They get real still and observant. They stop chewing. They might cock a foot to prepare for flight. Um, so when that fight or flight is successful, we escape. The horse escapes and we are able to recover that internal equilibrium where the stress hormones decrease and we get, you know, we, we get regulated again. When the fight or flight is unsuccessful, we're trapped and unable to prevent the inevitable. Inevitable. So when that happens, fight or flight is thwarted. You're not able to run away. You can't fight your way out of it. Um, the horse is tied to a patient's pole. Uh, you know, they can't fight it. They can't run. What happens is you end up with agitation or collapse of the system. So remember the inescapable shock. Um, so since horses are flight animals, flight is going to be their first choice, typically. In a horse that's choice is fight, that likely means that their flight response has been thwarted or prevented. So I think I talked last week, perhaps, about a horse that um, has a biting issue. Maybe it was the week before. Uh, the horse that bites and how I'd worked with a, a young horse and had a conversation with Adele, and she said, Adele Shaw, the willing equine. Um, I just assume most people that listen to this podcast know who Adele is. Um, so <laughs> I discussed that with her help. We sort of discovered that maybe this this filly's problem was that she uh, hadn't experienced flight response being successful. So she had learned to get aggressive, and a similar thing happened with Mac. And so how can we sort of restore that? Um, so sort of backing up to last week's episode and the inescapable shock, that's the collision between two contradictory processes, excitatory and, and inhibitory. So that breaks down that equilibrium. So it's why being able to do something to protect yourself is critical in preventing things like PTSD and lasting scars from the event. So inescapable shock results when the organism cannot do anything to affect the inevitable, which is why flooding and sending horses into learned helplessness is so insidious because it, it forces that system and that inescapable shock to happen. So you'll often see with patients pulls, sometimes people will tie them and the horse will get scared and pull back and try as much as it can to get away to the point where it's like flailing on the ground and it just can't get away and it's it's fighting for its life at this point and then it realizes it can't and then it just gives up and now it's you could walk up to it with a flag <laughs> you could probably beat it and the horse is done like the brain is offline we don't have a horse anymore we have a husk a shell and so that's why it is so horrible <laughs> to put horses into learned helplessness and it's so common because people learned long ago, you know, when they're trying to use horses for moving things or transportation, that 
if the horse is not responding in the way that they want, then all they have to do is sort of get the horse to shut down. And then all of a sudden they're very compliant and act like they have, they've learned something. They, um, you know, have digested the experience and now they get it. Uh, that if you just assert your dominance and your authority over them, that now they'll comply and they suddenly know all of these things. Like, um, you see people that break out horses that will get on them and ride them until they are done bucking, you know, when they've never had a person on and just, and then all of a sudden the horse walk trots and canters normally. And you're like, Whoa, what happened? The horse learned all of a sudden. And the, the logical assumption from that was, okay, well now I've asserted my dominance and the horse has all these pre-programmed things that it just comes knowing without being taught. Um, but really it's, it just becomes very compliant and shut down and it, it, all it learns is that you're frightening (laughs) and you are the abuser. So what we want to do from that, um, now that we have a lot more information since the days of medieval practices, uh, and you know, the horse world is still catching up. There's still a lot of that occurring and people just don't know better or aren't ready to hear differently. And that has its own issue wrapped up in it that in order to shift your methods, you have to recognize that perhaps there is a different, better way. Otherwise, why would you change? And in order to do that, you have to understand that your methods are not as optimal for whatever reason. And if that reason is that you are harming the horse mentally, physically, emotionally, what have you, then that becomes a very hard decision to make. And that is not easy. And it really is asking a lot of people. And that's why it's so incredible to me that so many people have shifted away from like strictly traditional negative reinforcement, positive punishment based training. Um, I mean, it really is truly incredible because that takes a lot of self-awareness and like giving yourself a lot of grace, honestly, like a lot of compassion to be like, okay, this might not have been the approach, but I didn't know better. So now I'm going to do better. (laughs) Um, that Maya Angelou quote comes back all the time for me that, um, when we know better, we can do better. And you just do the best you can until you know better. So, um, again, with the inescapable shock that when that fight, flight, freeze doesn't work, that is where the problems start to crop up. Um, so when the horse is unable to escape or decrease its discomfort or fear, we shut down. And so with the stress hormones that are released... What's important to understand about those is um, in trauma, that secretion doesn't really stop. It doesn't return to the baseline after the threat is over um, because it's once the system shuts down, it looks like everything's fine. The horse is still, it's not reactive anymore, but those stress hormones are still happening. So as you can imagine, when the horse is constantly releasing cortisol, adrenaline, um, and not able to do anything to feel better, it's still afraid. It just doesn't really look as reactive anymore. Um, you can imagine that that leads to ulcers and a lot of health issues. It leads to stereotypic behaviors. It would, I mean, logically, uh, it's probably why some horses are more injury prone than others. Those high levels of stress, just like in humans, contribute to inflammation. And 
when you're constantly inflamed or constantly fighting an issue, whether that's mental, physical, emotional, your body is constantly in that fight mode. And it is it turns sort of autoimmune where it starts breaking down the the host. Um, so this is sort of where we shift into neuroplasticity. So that's a fun word that I, I, it took me quite a bit to fully grasp the concept of neuroplasticity. I know that like the brain isn't fixed and that you can, you can change it, but like, what does that mean? So what that means is that the brain is formed in a use dependent manner. So neurons that fire together, wire together. Um, so what the brain does and how it reacts and how you react and how often that happens, how often you need to go into whatever system that is sort of what your brain funnels into. So, um, something really common that we talk a lot about in therapy world is if you are constantly, whether you're joking or not, whether you're constantly saying things like, I'm so stupid, I'm so dumb, I'm ugly, I'm horrible, I'm an idiot, uh, I can't do anything right, God, I'm never enough, it's always something with me, I'm just constantly messing up, you're listening, um, and so it you, you may feel like those things are just like passing flippant phrases, but when that becomes sort of the channel that your little brain river is flowing down, it starts getting etched deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. So then that sort of becomes the default. Circuits that fire repeatedly may become the default setting, the most likely thing to occur. So when something does go wrong, it reinforces, I'm stupid, I'm an idiot, I'm dumb, what have you. And then you keep flowing down that river and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Whereas if you are mindful and aware and notice and make the effort and the intention to do something different, then you start rewiring differently. So that's where CBT is helpful for um, reframing your cognitions, your automatic thoughts, thought stopping, stop the thought when it's a negative one, notice it, and then reframe it. I'm, you know, you're at work, and you have dropped ink all over your desk. God, I'm so stupid. I'm so clumsy. Mm, stop. That is negative. <laughs> Let's see if we can reframe that. I have a lot going on today and I'm moving a little quick and I, I drop my stuff. So let's, what if I settle and I take it easy, remind myself that it's not that deep and I'll get there when I get there. And this is just where we're at today. Have a little bit of patience, a little bit of compassion for myself. Then it's, we're going to move on. It'll be fine. And instead of having so much weight on it, you know, that, this is the definition. It defines your life, your existence, who you are. Um, whether you think it carries that much weight or not, it does to your brain, <laughs> to you. You, it, Your thoughts have that power. And so if you, if you notice that that's sort of your automatic thought to change that, those neurons that fire together, wire together. So when you have a, an explosion <laughs> of ink all over your desk, if your automatic thought is is that you're stupid and that you're clumsy and horrible, then you're going to start to believe that, look for that more. If your response is a compassionate and empathetic one to yourself that facilitates and promotes patience, that is going to be your automatic one. It takes work to get from the sort of unhealthy maladaptive ones to the, the healthier, um, more beneficial ones. Uh, but once you're there, then 
things start to change in really interesting ways. So similar things happen with horses because horses that are reactive are that way for a reason. They have that fear response and they're constantly vigilant for things that are coming up that are going to hurt them. And then when that's paired with fight or flight, that's what they do. They run. Um, And those triggers are sort of a similar thing. They get wired together. So individuals, horse, human, that feel safe uh, on a cellular, cellular, I hate that word, cellular level, specialize in play, exploration, cooperation. But those that feel afraid specialize in managing fear, abandonment, and in horses, what we I feel like see the most is vigilance. So the ones that are constantly viscerally afraid that have grown up seeing the world as a fearful experience that were ripped away from their mothers or have been manhandled and pushed around by people are going to be hypervigilant around them. So that's why, again, with the um, wiring together, it's important to train default behaviors and to practice kindness and help teach rather than force. There's a very big difference in the two. Um, so something else I'd like to sort of explore that was mentioned in the book is, uh, Vander and I believe her name is Judy Herman, Harmon. I can't remember. I didn't write it down. Um, sorry about that. Uh, is there, I believe it's her anyway, there are a lot of names in the book, but their proposed sort of DSM diagnosis, the diagnostical diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders, um, is the, and it's it's proposed. It has been denied for one reason or another. There, Bessel van der Kolk in the book has some um, of his speculations as to why that is, but um, it is potentially not one that would be treated by medication and needs more maybe alternative applications. It's sort of fuzzy. So if that's something you care about, read the book. But um, developmental trauma disorder, I think even if it's not a real diagnosis for humans, and it's probably never going to be for horses either. I do think it's interesting to look at the, some of the criteria for it and how that might apply to horses. And I think it might be a semi-decent, at least stepping stone on the way to assessing, like, is my horse dealing with trauma? So um, the first thing here, there are three things. And then the third one's got some, some bullet points. So number one, a pervasive pattern of dysregulation, uh, emotionally, physically, sort of, are they kind of all over the place, not reacting to things in a quote unquote normal way? Um, a pervasive pattern with problem, uh, or with, <laughs> with problem, with attention and concentration. So is it really hard for them to focus? Are they constantly looking around? Are they looking at other things? Um, are they distractible? Like highly so. Uh, and three, difficulties getting along with self and others. So the sort of additional bullets with this one is a being so at- agitated or shut down that there's no focus. That to relieve tension, they rely on things that are potentially harmful to the self or rocking, etc. So in horses that might look like cribbing, weaving, stereotypic behaviors, coordination difficulties, a lot of tripping, um, a lot of injury being clingy or needy, and in horses, separation anxiety, really easily latching on to, to attachments, and when they leave or they're taken away, it's it's very, very stressful. Um, not trusting people, finding it difficult to make herds and assimilate into, or 
make friends and assimilate into herds. Um, so there was a bit of a vicious cycle that they covered in the book um, of kids, particularly in school, having that chronic arousal and in the sense of like agitation, being stressed, and then a lack of comfort from a parental figure, their attachment figure, um, which led to them being disruptive, oppositional, aggressive, which then led to them being unpopular at school, which resulted in further rejection and punishment, which increased the stress arousal and then the lack of, and it's a circle and it keeps going. And I see that in some horses that I notice have issues like some of them that have, that I've observed anecdotally here, um, that have cribbing problems or are highly reactive tend to sort of exist on the outsides of the herd where when they come around, the other horses might flatten their ears or engage distancing behaviors, uh, communication, communicative behaviors, um, that they don't really assimilate super well. And it's, it's that dysregulation I feel like might be a little alarming to the other horses, um, in some ways it might not feel safe and the other horses don't really know how to relax around them and communicate that they're safe and not overly reactive. Um, so that's, that, I, I don't know if that has any merit, but it feels true. <laughs> so that's what we're rocking with. Um, so then another important thing in understanding sort of the, the makeup of trauma here and how that might apply to horses is the relationship attachment and attunement element. So, this is that connective element. And as social creatures, we're very much like horses that are herd animals. They need that social contact to feel safe. In the modern world, we don't super feel like we do as much. Uh, everybody values independence, at least in my neck of the woods. And it is, it's highly regarded. And I think that there is a lot of value and a lot of benefit to that. But it can also go a detrimental direction. It, oh, sorry, throat sound. Um, in which it you get hyper independent and you don't need anybody. But as a social creature, at a fundamental level, you do. You must be connected to other people. You must be able to feel safe and comfortable around them. And if not, it it is a, a sort of a red flag that something is wrong. And with horses, very much so. So um, in the book... Vanderkolk talks about not being seen, not being known, and having nowhere or no one to turn to to feel safe is devastating. So in that, you might have heard, not being seen, not being known is attunement. Being seen and being known. Having nowhere to turn, no one to turn to, is attachment or lack thereof. So attachment and attunement are, like, crucial. <laughs> are like They're, like, crucial, you know? Um, so, but... But as we know, chronic emotional abuse can be just as devastating as physical. So that lack of safety in an early caregiving relationship leads the individual to not know how to feel safe. And then there's an impaired sense of inner reality, excessive clinging, self-damaging behavior. So with a horse, you can imagine how early weaning practices, again, contribute to issue and are so harmful and I'd like to do a whole episode on weaning. I was going to at one point and I got distracted because I have a feeling it's going to be a deep divey episode and it's one I want to cover well. Um, so that might be something I bring up on that front. But um, that not knowing how to feel safe on a, on a physical level, emotional level is something that is difficult to rewrite, but I think is mandatory for 
a, a recovery into feeling safe, I guess, which is a circle. Sorry for that explanation. It was bad. Um, but so the most common response to distress is seeking out activities or relationships that bring you comfort and engagement. But if no one's ever comforted you, you're going to find other ways of getting relief in order to cope. So cribbing, stereotypic behaviors, um, and it's it's really unfortunate that that's sort of the direction it goes instead of reattempting to find that connection. But if you don't know how, you don't know how. So I think that's a big part of our work with horses is to, especially the ones that have been through a lot and that have been through really trialing experiences, is is to help them overcome that. And I'll get into it a little bit more in the, the treatment section. Um, but I think it's important to to consider that it doesn't necessarily have to be this big scheduled thing where you're at least with horses with humans more or less um but with horses it doesn't have to be a a huge to do um something that can be really helpful is just spending time with them as a neutral stimuli and and sort of engaging in a positive way you know maybe when you come out you bring a snack and you leave. And it can sort of start building up this rapport, counter conditioning, some desensitizing. But yeah, so that is, that is the cycle. So like I said, the most common response is, is seeking out those, those relationships that bring you comfort. And if the most natural way to calm yourself is when upset is, is when you're upset is to cling to an attachment figure, um, you know, that that makes sense. And that works. But if you have had experiences that have not allowed you to feel physically safe, um, you then face a dilemma because your your biology and your instincts are telling you to cling to that attachment figure. But if they hurt you, then now you're in a rock and a hard place. You're terrified of that contact. So uh, that's that's where we end up, like I was describing with horses that get sent into learned helplessness by their person. Um now you're in a rock and a hard place because when you're out on a trail by yourself and you your partner is one that you have a lot of mixed emotions towards, you being the horse, um, it's very hard to feel like you can rely safely on your attachment figure in this situation. You have a, a conflicted emotional experience with them. So it's it's very important that we show up for our horses as beings that see them, feel them, understand them and respect them and their fears and help address them in a way that is not detrimental and invalidating in that way. I know it might sound silly to say like invalidating about a horse, but um, on a behavioral level, if you are looking at a horse that like I described in a few episodes ago that's afraid of a plastic bag and you use that invalidating language as you would to another human where you're like oh that's so silly why would you be afraid of that that's dumb uh, then what that does is that propels your actions and your behavior towards that animal to be um, somewhat frustrated and impatient to where then maybe you're yanking the horse and dragging it over to the thing which then you might end up flooding it so it does matter how you how you approach them. And so if you're having that invalidating thought as a human, it's going to have your behavior show up as invalidating. So if you validate it on the flip side and you say, I see that you're afraid of that, you attune, you know, you say that's, that's scary. It, it doesn't have to be scary. 
let's let's see if we can help you feel more comfortable with this. I might walk closer to it. I'll split you and the thing that you're afraid of, give you a buffer, and then maybe we work up to approaching it at your own time as you feel safe. Um, you might use clicker training through that, what have you. But um, showing up in that way, um, practicing that attunement and helping sort of retrain that and not create that dynamic where they're like, I don't know, you're scary and so is that thing and now I'm on my own with this. So um, how far are we? Okay, I'm at 51 minutes. So these days I'm trying to keep episodes around an hour because of my time. I'm trying to set boundaries for myself or I'm not overextending myself. So as I move into the treatment section here, I do think I'm going to break this up into two episodes or <laughs> this episode into two episodes. So now you have three, you have three parts to this trauma section, but I do feel like it, it really deserves the time and the, the dedication to it, uh, to actually talking about this. And I do have quite a bit to say on the treatment recovery section. So I think I'm going to, I'm going to call it here and then I'll post the part three next week. So sorry to, to sort of tease you in that way. I didn't realize it. I honestly thought I was going to run out of things to talk about because that's sort of what happened last week. But let me tell you last week. Okay. So the entire time I'm trying to record, we have a, a window hammock for our cats, right? And Zuko, my little brown cat continuously was jumping down on my desk, eating my straw, knocking things over, biting my cables, uh, trying to sit on my keyboard. And he's not normally that bad. Like ever since we put the hammock above the desk, he normally sits there. The second I started talking, he was like all over it and just was driving me crazy. Kept breaking my con my concentration. I had to keep pausing. So frustrating. But now I am recording in my bedroom, actually, and uh, he has been sleeping next to me on the bed the entire time. So maybe this this was the solution. So I'm I'm happy with that. Um, but yeah. So that said, I think I am gonna conclude this episode here, and then we'll do the treatment recovery in part three. Um, and some things I wanted to mention at the bottom of the show here is a I recommend reading the book, obviously, if if you are in a place where you feel safe enough to do so, but also reading Language, Signs, and Calming Signals of Horses, Recognition and Application by Raquel Dreisma. Very, very good book on learning how to attune to your horse. And like I said, I'll talk a little bit further on that in the next episode, but great episode for recognizing discomfort in your horse and um, then having a conversation on maybe how to show up in that way where the horse then understands that. Um, but yeah, I, I do think I'm going to call it. So thank you guys endlessly for listening. I so appreciate it. I will now be recording the AMA episode. So if you want to hear that, please do consider becoming a member. All the links that you need are down in the description below. And I will catch you guys next one in the next one. Let's end that a little better. And I'll catch you guys in the next one. Okay, bye.